1: Welcome to this week's episode of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you every week by the TLS. Uh, I'm Thea Linarduzzi, a commissioning editor at the TLS, and I am pleased to be joined by our green-fingered arts editor, Lucy Dallas. Lucy, are you going to update us on what you've managed to grow?
2: Would you like me to? I would would love to. I don't have to. Um, (laughs) What I've managed to grow, it's not so much that I've managed to grow it, but I have not yet killed it or let it expire. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I think so. Uh, Gooseberries the gooseberries are uh, on the march and the red currants chives garlic which i can't take i can't take much credit for any of it really (laughs) and then i planted lots of things because now it's planting season so it's exciting so what have you planted beans loads Loads of beans beans. um and the the broad beans are immediately full of black fly so i've been hand if i see a ladybird i pick her up on my finger and i transport her over because ladybirds eat the black yeah. fly. Yeah, do you know that you, the, can
1: buy, you can buy ladybirds? I remember you telling me yeah, that you bought I, some. Yeah, I, I bought some ladybirds and um, populated my garden with ladybirds. I'm not sure how successfully. I don't think I saw very many. Well,
2: I might have to do that because at the moment I'm doing them one at a time. And let me tell you, that is a laborious laborious. way of doing it. But it's quite nice. It's nice having a little ladybird on your finger.
1: So I'm doing it one by one. Well, do keep us posted on your your success. Um, Right, listeners, I have to remind you about a very good offer on subscriptions to the TLS. If you live in the US or Canada, go to podcast.the-tls.com. If you live anywhere else, including the UK, then go to the-tls.co.uk slash pod19 pod19. And you'll get five issues for just £5 or $5. Coming up on today's show, the cultural historian Anna Katerina Schaffner takes a long view of fat and fat phobia, considering our shifting attitudes to the stuff of life that is also, in these days of obesity crises, killing more of us than ever before. The winners of the Man Booker International Prize for Fiction and Translation were announced last week as the Omani novelist Joko al and the American translator Marilyn Booth for the novel Celestial Bodies. will be playing a reading from that novel here. And we've a number of articles about Robinson Crusoe this week, whose 300th birthday we're marking this year. As part of the celebrations, we've given the issue a slight travel focus. The TLS's travel editor, Catherine Morris, will be joining us to show off her wares. In recent decades, the British population has grown in girth. The NHS England Obesity Report for 2017 found that 58% of women and 68% of the men were overweight or obese, as well as one in five children aged 3 to 4 and more than one in three children aged 10 to 11. These weight issues are thus broadly in line with a perturbing global trend. The majority of the world's population now lives in countries where obesity kills more people than does being overweight. Worldwide, obesity, defined as having a body mass index of more than 30, has nearly tripled since 1975. Yet in spite of their steadily growing numbers, the overweight are still subject to contempt and discrimination. Fat shaming remains the most widespread and socially acceptable form of discrimination based on appearance. That is lifted, more or less wholesale, from the beginning of Anna-Katerina Schaffner's wide-ranging cultural history of fat and our attitudes towards it. Told via three books, The Truth About Fat by Anthony Warner, Fat by Christopher Forth, and Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fatphobia by Sabrina Strings. In the piece, Anna guides us from the attitudes of antiquity, in Sparta the overweight were apparently threatened with banishment if they did not slim down, to today, taking in often conflicting notions of animality, nobility, decay, power, primitiveness, and civilization. Anna joins us on the line to offer further illumination now. Hello, Anna.
3: Hello. Good morning.
1: My introduction will probably have some people saying, "But in the olden days, people revered fat, didn't they? they, they you know, they found it attractive. Look at the Venus of Willendorf." Uh, so it's probably it probably makes sense to start with the the long history of fat first. Christopher Forth's book. Uh, it sounds really excellent.
3: Uh, what what's his thesis? Yeah, it it is a really, really fascinating study. Um, Basically, Forth argues that um, attitudes to fat have a really long history that ranges back all the way to classical antiquity. And he also argues that our attitudes to fat have always been ambivalent. We might think, as you just said, that um, in the past, in the olden days, we, we uh, thought that fat was unambiguously celebrated, associated with fertility, with life, with vitality and so on. But fourth, um, really convincingly shows that fat has always been a, a, a profoundly ambivalent issue. So it was associated with vitality, life and fertility, yes, but also at the same time with death, decay, creatureliness, animality, um, our physical existence, human embodiment, and so on. So even while, while while the Venus of Willendorf might you know seem a kind of celebratory, famously rotund icon, um, there were also lots of historical records that showed that fat had. Positive and negative um, associations, um, even in 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 an age where we thought it, it would have just been looked at as something, unambiguously positive. But it has these associations with animality, with um you know with our basically bodily existence. And I think that's a really really fascinating and convincing idea because it challenges this uh, this assumption that you know fat in the olden days was good and fat in the modern period is is um is perceived as something negative.
1: And a lot of this. This uh, seems to be rooted in in the kind of the material of the stuff itself. This kind of it's it's something that uh, you describe or, or he describes as being both solid and liquid and and so on.
3: Yeah, and that's I think that's another really original argument that Forth makes here. So he doesn't just adopt this you know constructivist attitude that our attitudes to fact are cultural constructs that change over time. Um but he also says that um while while they do change over the h- time, they're also rooted in the very materiality of fat. Um, and fat itself is a very kind of strange strange protein substance because it's both you know it's sort of situated somewhere between solid and liquid. So for example, um fat can be, can be, is a very slippery substance. Um, It's greasy, oily, inflammable and can potentially be luminous. And it really has this kind of wonderful capacity to shift between solid and liquid states. Um, So oil, for example, doesn't really fit into the category of most liquids because it's too viscous and solid fat is not really solid because it's squishy and sticky. And Forth argues that this kind of, um, you know, strange in betweenness of fat um, can can cause alarm and and also to a certain extent predisposes us to to think of it in in a very um, you know in in a in a way that that might be both positive and negative at the same time and that can can evoke responses of disgust.
2: Yeah, can when means. you say it like that it's been it's completely it's been completely necessary animal fat has been completely necessary to us for thousands of years for burning it and eating it and using it for you know melting down whales i mean that's not the only use but you know what i mean it's it's been it's been totally kind of crucial um to us but but as you say there is this ambivalent attitude towards it despite the fact that without it we'd be sunk
3: yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, and that's, that's I think, at the core of his argument, that it's, it's the substance of life. And it's also associated with th- things that we might find alarming, uncanny, that remind us of our physical existence. And it's also associated with the fat of the land. It's associated with fattening up livestock and so on. So it has all these wonderful cultural and physiological connotations that then in turn um, shape very specific historical attitudes to fat and then he takes us on this lovely journey through history showing how you know, how fat was predominantly viewed in, in very specific historical periods. And we are by far the most fat phobic period in history. Um, there's no doubt about that. But, um, fat was associated with, um, disgusting earthboundness, for example, in the Middle Ages, where, you know, fat was, was deemed to be associated with gluttony, the sin of, you know, privileging the, the flesh over the spirit. And, um, and there are some wonderful examples in the study about how Judas, um, Judas for example, was, was depicted as fat and swollen and so fat that he literally couldn't see the light because of his eyes were just reduced to tiny slits. And he was this sort of quintessential figure that signified the kind of rotten corporality of the fat body and and the idea was that his um his attachment was to um, earthly matters not to spiritual matters and that his fat body dragged him down to earth and prevented his soul from transcending and from reaching you know greater heights
1: if we um if we kind of
3: uh, press fast forward on history a little bit.
1: We can go. We we whiz straight from uh, a jollier moment for fat, which you which you mentioned in the European Middle Ages, when we have all of these fat European kings, um, you know, and fatness became associated with nobility and power, and that was sort of it seems like a a swan a swan song for fat, and because then a disenchantment creeps in, uh, and then we end up by the turn of the twentieth century. So I really have fasted us forward quite a lot here. Um, tell us about the will the willpower argument, because that. That's one that that has really sort of shaped the way that we are now in these times of, as you say, kind of uh, prevalent fat phobia.
3: Yes, I think I think um, that that is also um, the main argument that Anthony Warner presents in his study, uh, "The Truth About Fat," where he essentially presents a lot of data, a lot lot of scientific research that challenges this very simplistic idea that people are fat because they're lacking in willpower, that they basically are responsible for being obese, that that it's a personal responsibility issue that can be reduced down to a lack of willpower, lack of discipline, um, that is basically a sign of a character failing. And he really challenges this argument that um, obesity is the result of a behavioral choice. Um, And I think he presents some very convincing and and very moving uh, data on that matter, saying that a lot of our Um, assumptions about why people might be overweight are very immoral, because we, you know, culturally, I think there's a strong tendency to think it has to do with um, what people eat with how much people eat and that they don't move and that they just don't manage to to control their at their their appetites. and he shows that there's a strong genetic dimension to obesity, that it has you know hormonal genetic um, causes and that it also has a lot of, socioeconomic causes and that there's a very strong correlation between obesity and social class, obesity and stress levels, obesity and um, deprivation and so on. So he really very powerfully challenges this simplistic and very immoral assumption that the obese are basically the architects of their own Bodies, and that is this is all down to lack of willpower and um, lack of discipline and, and weak character.
1: Well, and it, inevitably, it becomes it becomes a very political book because it's a, it's it's very it's a very political matter. You know, this this link between obesity and poverty it's incontrovertible, and it's so multi-layered. There's so much to unpack there.
3: Yeah, absolutely, and I think this is what makes his book really interesting because he does show that. Um, our attitudes to to the obese and our attitudes to overweightness in general is, is really down to our politics and our perspective. So, you know, for example, psychoanalysts and psychologists would always emphasize that being overweight has at some level something to do with the reaction to trauma and to loss and to childhood problems and so on. Um, whilst, you know, the kind of typical right-wing attitude to um, obesity is that it's all down to willpower or rather the lack of it. Um, and and this basically squarely places the responsibility for obesity in, in the court of the obese. And it, it denies that, um, that there might be environmental factors, there might be social factors, there might be genetic factors, and so on. It's, um, you know, it's the kind of classical healthist narrative, the idea that, you know, in in the age of neoliberalism, we're all personally responsible for our own health. Um, And I think people on the right side of the political spectrum always tend to, you know, to make the individual responsible for their own health, whilst people on the left side of the political spectrum, they would um, be much more open to take into consideration environmental causes, social causes, external causes. Um, and Warner's book is really strange in terms of his politics because, on the one si- on the one hand, he really makes a very powerful argument about. Um, obesity being, to a very large extent, determined by factors that people can't control. Um, And he, you know, in that sense, he he really creates a strong plea for us to be much more sympathetic and much more nuanced and much more careful in, in, um, in how we talk about obesity. And on the other hand, he refuses to acknowledge that diet and um, the food industry might play a role in our current obesity crisis. And and that is very strange because um, I think he's trying to challenge this idea that obesity is solely the cause of eating too much and eating the wrong kinds of foods. And, and he does that very convincingly and very powerfully. But he does have this kind of strange reluctance to acknowledge that the food industry plays a role in this. Yeah, specifically um, and the junk that, food. He denies that sort of squarely, which is, which is odd. Strange... And that's an ideological refusal, I think, to, to, to acknowledge that. Um... It's a strange blind spot. Yes, yes. That, that,
1: that does
2: sound curious. There's, there's one, more, um, one more kind of rather very um, specific line that the third book is dealing with. that I think um, if you could just tell us uh, finally, Anna, about the, about the thesis in Fearing the Black Body which, by Sabrina Strings, which yes, brings in another that- element, another social and political element to the question.
3: Yeah, Sabrina, Strings' study um, is also very interesting thought-provoking. It's called Fearing the Black Body, the Racial Origins of Fat Phobia. And um, Strings really tries to show us how our current fat phobia is rooted very specifically in a fear of black women. And she argues that we can trace this phobia back to the 18th century, where fatness was being linked to African savagery, coarseness, gluttony and immorality. Um, And she very much argues that racial, moral and religious arguments were much more important than 20th century medical discourse in establishing this modern ideal of slenderness in America. Um, And she, she shows how fat phobia and thin fetishism very much go hand in hand and that the myth of the savage, fat black woman, you know, with all its connotations of coarseness, greed, hypersexuality, immorality and unredeemable otherness was absolutely essential in constructing the ideal of the slender civilized white woman. Um, and she she really presents a lot of evidence um, that shows that um, this ideal and in the myths of the savage fat black woman were used both to degrade black women and to discipline white women. Um, and she argues that these older connotations and the racial connotations of um, obesity have e- existed before obesity w- was beginning to be um, stigmatized from a medical point of view and that medicine um, and, you know, the kind of medicalization of ob- obesity really um, only was was used to legitimize existing racial, sexual and class hierarchies. Well, that is a,
1: there's a very compelling truth in that, I suppose, once you're reading it in the wake of a book uh, like uh, Christopher Fourth's that gives us the much longer view you know, it complicates the picture still further. We could clearly talk about this all day because it's a wide, big issue that, you know, is, is as you've made very, very clear, incredibly complicated. But um Anna, thank you so much for for wading through these these three books for us.
3: Well thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Thank you. Speak soon. Bye. Okay. Bye bye.
2: One of the things I was thinking actually when I was reading this is that so a, let me say, first of all, it's not a problem being fat mm. unless it's actually, you know, you're medically in danger. But if it is a problem and that someone's trying to deal with it and they can't deal with it or they're, you know, unhealthy because of it, it's one of the few visible Problems. Yeah, I was just thinking how many people are walking around with mental health problems. Enormous amount of us, in fact, yeah. if you think about the numbers. But you can't see it.
1: Well, no, will quite quite often the obesity will be a manifestation of a of a mental health problem. So exactly. As well,
2: but because you can see it, because 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 also Anna talks about sort of fat shaming and people mm. being kind of awful to people.
1: Mm. Oh my God, there's and, that absolutely horrific uh example that she gives early on in her piece from 2015 when a group called Overweight Haters Limited. And I I think I remember seeing this in the papers at the time, but completely suppressed, I guess, because it's so hideous. Mm. Um, uh, This group got onto the London Underground and started distributing flyers to to people who they obviously deemed to be grossly overweight. And uh, with just... Hate messages, mm,
2: telling them they're ugly and awful, and it's their fault. Yeah, and we—they
1: say we also object that the beautiful, which is misspelt, I, I would point out, uh, uh, beautiful pig is used as an insult. You are not a pig; you are a fat, ugly human. And just
2: absolutely kind of extraordinary that people think they can just walk up to people and give them, you know, something that that that, that says that. And and as I say, just because it's one of the few physical, you can see it most. Diseases. I know it's not a disease, but let, you know, I'm saying if, and that's a very big if. If it is a problem for you medically, all mental health, ninety-eight percent, I suppose, mental health issues, and the vast majority of, you know, conditions, diseases, you can't necessarily see them. Mm. So this is the the only one that you can sort of see, undeniably, and so so it lays apparently lays people open to this awful um, behavior.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah.
4: Maladies, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit juviderm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door.
2: We're being particularly broad-minded this week in the sense that we're talking about travel, where people go and why, what they think and imagine about the places they go to and what they write about it afterwards. Happily, we have the TLS travel editor, Catherine Morris, here in the studio to guide us through. Catherine, thank you for coming in to talk to us. Thank you for having me. Gone all, she's come all the way down in the lift, a whole 12, uh, yeah. 12 floors in the lift. It was a long a long journey, you could tell us about it. It takes a bit.
5: surprisingly long time. It does, tell it us.
2: actually does. <laughs> <laughs> um, but our first stop in the travel section, see what I did there, is uh, Paris, or rather the Paris of the imagination rather than the city itself. Uh, Natasha Leara reviews a book called We'll Never Have Paris. Catherine, can you explain to us, please, why it's called that and, if possible, what it means?
6: Yes,
5: the title of the book is a play on the phrase, we'll always have Paris, from the last scene of Casablanca. And it encapsulates an idea of Paris expressed by Andrew Gallicks uh, in the introduction to the book, which he edited. Uh, Gallicks is a, a writer and an academic. He teaches at Sorbonne University. And pleasingly, he begins his uh, introduction by mentioning an issue of the TLS from 1993. Excellent. (laughs) Excellent. What a good book, that must be. This was a a special issue devoted to France, and the cover illustration was a black-and-white photograph of a young woman on the banks of the Seine. It was taken by Robert Duano as part of a series of photographs for a magazine, and the woman, Gallic says, seems to epitomise left-bank bohemian chic. But in fact, the woman in the picture is the English writer Emma Smith. And Galax has his own more recent example of this phenomenon. He was having a drink in Paris one day with uh, Christiana Spens, who is a contributor to this book. And an American woman from the next table gestured to ask whether she could take Spens's picture. And the impression Galax got was that this woman saw Spens as a wonderful example of Parisian chic. Mm. But Spens is also English. And this episode set off a train of thought about, uh, I'm quoting here, the extent to which our vision of literary Paris has been shaped by Anglophone writers. And Galax goes on, By literary Paris, I do not mean the city's depiction in works of literature, but rather the more nebulous notion of Paris as the very space of literature, a place, crucially, that you have to go to in order to become, be recognised as, and lead the life of a writer. Um, But there's a sense in which, as as Galax puts it, Paris is a city where literature can, uh, can be lived out, where you can be a writer without actually writing.
2: Mm. Mm. Um, and
5: this, incidentally, it reminded me of an interview I heard years ago with the, the actor Bill Nighy, who aspired to be a writer as a young man. And for that reason, he decided to go to Paris, because that's how you become a writer. Mm. And he said that once he would got there, he got out his notebook and he drew a margin... And that was it. That was the extent of, <laughs> of his writing career. So we have this idea of Paris that is uh, to remove from what Paris actually is. Um, and the title of the book hints at something that recurs in the collection, which is a disappointment about Paris. Um, and in fact, Natasha Lehrer begins her review by mentioning something called Paris Syndrome. Oh,
1: this is so good. I, <laughs> I love this.
5: Yes, this is something the BBC reported on in 2006, and the article is still online. Um, apparently... At that time, about a dozen Japanese visitors a year had to be repatriated after experiencing extreme distress because Paris didn't meet their expectations.
2: <laughs> and it's an unusual thing to be hospitalised. It's a bit like Stendhal syndrome, isn't it? Except yeah, they actually just had to being be overwhelmed by, by, well, it's the, by the beauty of, of art. <laughs> yes, I suppose, <laughs> I suppose so. Stendhal overwhelmed syndrome by is by the,
1: the lack of Paris. Mm. But also, isn't that, isn't
2: that when you stand in front of something and it's so beautiful you're overwhelmed? Beautiful. Oh, I yeah. see, yes, no, you're right. So that is the opposite, isn't it? Yeah, but Lara writes
5: that this sense of Paris falling short is repeatedly expressed, um, often in response to the author not being quite sure what they're seeking other than some version of the
2: past, whether their own or that of the city. I, th- I just, I mean, to be... It's not quite devil's advocate. It's, it's, it's like the gap between the real and the imagined, isn't it? And it is is it like a set of of, I'm going to state it kind of in an extreme way, is it a set of kind of ridiculous touristy assumptions that are inevitably punctured, with the same idea that Oxford is not just full of photogenic aristocrats punting everywhere? Is it, you know, Paris is a real place with, with real people that live there, and sometimes it's dirty and smelly and people push you out of the way. The same they do anywhere. Do you think it's because of that, of a, of a set of unrealistic assumptions, or is it because it's so resonant and mythical? that it couldn't ever possibly live up to expectations, I
5: think? It's a bit of both, I think. Um, Jonathan Gibbs writes here that no one can live up to their expectations of Paris, the gap between the expat fantasy and the reality. Um, but I think that gap is emphasised here, I get the sense, by the fact that only a few of the contributors live or have lived in Paris. Mm. So they don't have much opportunity to measure their Expectations against the reality, and to reflect on the differences. Um, Galax says, in in the introduction, that that's that's the point. It's the expectations we're interested in here. But the question is raised: How do you accurately represent reality? Um, Jean Rhys dismissed Ernest Hemingway and Henry Miller's Paris as inauthentic, and Lera points out that Gallic quotes um, Rhys, but then himself wonders whether. It there is such a thing as a real Paris rather than. Well, is there ask, ask a, a p- Parisian.
2: Well,
1: yeah, I mean, the, the real Paris is, 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 I guess, well, I mean, the real Paris, there
3: are well,
5: many. Millions there are
1: many real, millions yeah. and millions yeah. of real Paris, is, but some of them will certainly involve waking up and dragging yourself off to work and having yeah. a rubbish sandwich at lunch. Well, actually, the sandwiches are usually pretty good. Mm. But, um,.
2: Yeah. I think uh, yeah, I just I have a I, I, you can see why Jean Reece is is feeling a bit dismissive because if, yeah. if if Hemingway, if having if it was just kind of swanning around getting hammered all the time and being s- surrounded by incredibly Photogenic, chic people, and then writing a masterpiece. But that's not, mm. and nobody writes a masterpiece like that. I like So I used to live there, mm. and you did, theater yeah. didn't you? And I came across quite a few people doing what you said Bill Nye was yeah, doing, exactly. being writers, though mm. they hadn't actually written anything, or if they did, it might not necessarily be a good thing. But
1: Paris Paris has that thing, doesn't it? Of, you know, the flaneur is, is, is the Parisian thing, so everyone thinks that that is what makes you a writer. You go and you just float and you absorb the city, and that somehow, whether or not you actually pick up a pen and, and mm. write anything. Anything, you're you're still kind of becoming that. It's, mm. it's an archetype, obviously. It's mm. a
2: really interesting. It's a really interesting idea. But I think if you were, you know, living, <clears throat> I don't know, in the in the nineteenth arrondissement, as you say, Thea, mm. you know, having quite a tough time, and there was people mm. going, oh, it, oh, it doesn't live up to the real Paris in my mind because it's full <laughs> of actual people, and you know, I can smell yeah. the drains. You'd be like, well,
5: in fact, um, <laughs> Natasha Lehrer does say that um, she tended to like the pieces that were had a less strong authorial eye, the ones that were evoking the city in fine detail. So she mentions, for example, a short story by Jerry Feely, uh, which leads both narrator and reader through a portal into another Paris of North African tat stores and Chinese mobile phone shops, West African hairdressers, Turkish kebab joints. So mm. it just real... Yeah, forward detail from a particular part of the city.
2: Yeah, yeah, and it's not that it's not that the picturesque part isn't there, but that's mm, not, it's, it's as not, well as it's not the only thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, um, there's another very different travel dream which you've also got a long piece about this week. The idea of kind of unspoilt countryside and bucolic solitude, and uh, Raffia Zakaria looks at this kind of travel for us in her piece, is not she? Catherine, could you talk us through the three the three books she's talking about?
5: Yes, the first is The Solace of Open Spaces by Gretel Ehrlich, and um, this was first published in 1985. Um, and It's a memoir by a woman who travelled from New York to Wyoming uh, to make a documentary about sheepherders. And her partner had been suffering from cancer, and while she was in Wyoming, he died, and she ended up staying. And she was set to work on the ranch herself, and she tells the story of what happened next. And the second book is called Haida, uh, a shepherd at the edge of the world. This is by...
1: Now, Thea, perhaps I could get call on you to oh pronounce their Icelandic names. <laughs> really cruel, because I, I have absolutely no idea. But it would, be, would it be Steinun Sigur, Sigurardotir and Haida Asgerdotir?
2: That sounds, <laughs> should that sounds go, tipped Should we just move on up? quickly? Yeah, yeah let's, let's <laughs> say that's, that's what they are.
5: So this is the story of a woman who, who takes over the fa- uh, family farm in Iceland at the age of 23 and the struggle she goes through to keep it. Um, and the third book is Where the Hornbeam Grows by Beth Lynch. This is about Lynch's move from London to Zurich and her struggle to feel at home there and the comfort she gets from tending plants and eventually when she and her husband move to the mountains uh, from looking after a
2: garden.
1: There's a line in the, in the it's in the, the Gretel Ehrlich book. It's said by her husband, not long before he dies, he says uh, of Wyoming, all this open space reminds me of possibility, uh, of the life you and I could have had together. Um, and that sort of seems to get to the the heart of all of these books in a sense. It's all about how you project, you project onto the space and you think that if you're in a particular space and you can either Uh, just be there or you can make it into something you know grow the perfect garden you'll Mm. be able to change the way you feel Mm. or what is possible for you
5: yeah in fact that quotation sort of makes clear how subjective it is and her her partner had a very different response so for him it felt quite oppressive because he was reminded of of um the end of his his own life Mm. the end of possibility but uh for her she finds it liberating um yeah uh, rafia zakaria uh, she mentions that Um, the local geography uh, I've got the quotation here it seemed to Elich the doing of a mad architect tumbled and twisted ribboned with faded deathbed colours and that seemed to mirror her emotional state and offer a kind of comforting alignment it's kind of a Um, bit like
1: a pathetic fallacy yeah that that sort of
5: idea Um, but then her grief was tempered by the people she met
2: who were full of life and she became absorbed in, in that world I was going to say, does nature provide the answers these people want? And the answer is, sort of, but not really. <laughs> it's not it's not a very satisfying answer, is it, from me? It, yeah. But moving swiftly on to the rest of the world, she said, um, quickly, that William Atkins has also surveyed a new Cambridge history of travel writing, um, a book which, as he says, costs the same as a return flight to Marrakesh and is almost big enough to need a seat of its own. Um, and he paints this brilliant picture of the traditional travel writer can you, um, can you introduce us to the traditional travel writer, Yes, yeah,
5: so I'll just read that section, if that's right. Um, so Atkins writes, as Paul Fossil puts it in his classic critique of travel writing between the wars abroad, exploration belongs to the Renaissance, travel to the bourgeois age. One reason that English makes such interesting travellers, he adds, is the national snobbery engendered by two centuries of wildly successful imperialism. The dominant sensibility of literary travel... Whatever the author's background, remains that of a public school Englishman born in the first half of the 20th century who understands the world as basically his. How has this fey creature, call him Victor, retained his preeminence? Erudite, athletic, resourceful, soldierly, self-effacing yet imperious, solicitous yet short-tempered. It's as if the genre has not caught up with the post-colonial reality from which it springs," wrote Robin Davidson 18 years ago in an introduction to an anthology of travel writing.
1: It's interesting because that does sort of make you think, and I know it's slightly different because uh, obviously Hemingway was was American, but it does make you think of that, of that you know that big white man sitting in in wherever he is, be it Paris or or India, just kind of observing and judging i guess mm. Mm.
2: why do they do it like this and not like that why don't they do it like me mm. um one of the morals of this um review not that it has to be a moral Seems to be avoid the English. <laughs> uh, there's a good Italian proverb, which again I'm going to ask Thea because I am not going to speak oh, Italian yeah. to Thea. There's a good Italian proverb about English one. people in Italy, isn't it? Go on. Well, it's,
1: it's English people who have who yeah who have been to Italy and then presumably come back and think the world of themselves, think they know better. Yeah. Inglesi uh, Italianato è un diavolo incarnato. So uh, you know the uh, Italianized English person is is a devil incarnate.
2: Okay. Um, <laughs> that's where you. In case you're in any doubt about that. <laughs> the devil incarnate
1: well this is presumably all the people who you know have gone off on the grand tour and and, and mm. that they know in where, Venice yeah. <laughs> they do it like this
2: um, yes so, so English to be avoided apart from those people there was a priest who t- seems to have told off everybody in the 1600s for thinking that um, people who think that greatness next unto a great pasty consists in a great fire and a greater state, <laughs> which just sounds yeah. terrific yeah, to, to me. It's a Cornish it? pasty,
5: do you think? Must
2: I mean, be. <laughs> probably. So those people seem to be fine, but he was quite cross with them. Um, but the other moral might be that travel writing can, and maybe even should, encompass all forms of writing. Do you think that's what he's saying, Catherine?
5: Um, what Atkins is saying? Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. So he says... Travel writing must be allowed to be anything: fiction, memoir, biography, commonplace book, ethnography, pamphlet, comf- uh, comic, um, etc. Because how else are you meant to describe? Well, everything. I, I, I'd, I'd agree with that. Um, you choose the genre that most suits your subject matter and your purposes, and and that could be anything. Um, incidentally, Atkins mentions Jeff Dyer's book, Jeff in Venice. Mm. That, that I, that's I a novel. See, but That's yeah. often spoken of in in the context of of travel writing. Uh, in the in the TLS. Uh, of course the books that are listed under travel are narrative accounts of the author's travels from one place to another. But I can't see why you wouldn't want to look at the forms Atkins lists if you're interested in travel. Well oh. and in fact
1: we have yeah. because the two pieces that we've talked about before, this one, the uh Andrew Galax's uh volume will never have Paris and then the the three books about people searching for solitude in these different places. They're mm. not they're not your typical uh, account of, of a journey from a to b and, mm. and one person's impressions they you know their their fiction their are mm. writing about being in one place and how that place changes rather mm. than rather than you moving to other places if if that yeah. makes any sense yeah
2: yeah um and i've got a final heinous question for you Catherine is there anyone that you would recommend as a travel writer well
5: i thought that william atkinson's rev- review is a really elegant piece of writing and it prompted me to seek out his book The Immeasurable World, which is about uh, deserts. It won the Stanford-Dolman Travel Writing Award a couple of months ago, and we had a lovely review of it in the TLS by Caroline Eden. Um, but perhaps I should use the opportunity to mention uh, Gerald Durrell, who we were talking about the other day. Please do, and yeah. And our shared love of Gerald Durrell. Yeah, <laughs> go on, tell us your
2: Gerald Durrell and story about Yes, about there is them. a
5: Gerald uh, Daryl's story which I told Lucy the other day which which turns out there are two versions I should tell two versions the two versions perhaps
2: a, tel- a telescoped version so of I've got um, um,
5: my uh, sister Emily when she was about seven years old she became obsessed with insects and uh, was doing things like breeding stick insects and things like that and she read all sorts of books about it and she read my family and other animals, and was incredibly taken with Dr. Stephanides, who who teaches Gerald Durrell as a, as a little boy, lots of things about trapdoor spiders and things, and is constantly showing him exi- exciting uh, natural phenomena and, and bugs and all sorts. So Emily read this, and and in my father's telling, he said that she came to him one day and said, I. I really think it's very important that I talk to Dr. Stephanie I think we'd have a lot to talk about. <laughs> and perhaps he could come to tea. And I, I, I just think, think it's very important I talk to him about insects. Uh, and his response was, uh, well, um, this all took place in Corfu. It's, it's probably fictionalised. and uh, p- Probably years ago, I don't think many of them may not be alive still. And I don't think that's going to be a possibility, I'm afraid. He said, oh, oh pl- please, I really do think that uh, we'd have a lot to talk about. Can we just look in the phone book? And he said, "Well, well, I suppose so." And got out the phone book and he looked at it. Ah, oh, Stephanides' doctor.
1: Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Give him a
2: call. And then, well,
5: oh, I suppose I'll ring the number. Rang the number. Hello, is that Doctor Stephanides? Yes. Uh, is it the Doctor Stephanides from My Family and Other Animals?
2: Yes.
1: <laughs> I wonder if he got that call many times. I wonder. Um, I do Most people,
2: he, I think, wouldn't just go, let's ring Dr. Stephanie. So
1: did he come to tea? Did it yeah. culminate with a tea? Yes, yeah. so and I perfect. Think they went to his flat in, in West London, And he I was believe.
5: nice? Extremely nice, and they talked happily about insects and all sorts of things. And we've got a couple of lovely photographs of them them together. It's
2: such a wonderful but story. I, should,
5: I, when I, I was talking to my sister about this yesterday, and I should just say that she remembers it differently. And sh- in her telling um, my dad was looking in the phone book and happened to see the name Dr Stephanides and knew that Emily was obsessed with insects and phoned it. Uh, That was his his idea. um, But I think they're they're being rather generous to the other. Each of them are are being rather generous to the other person. Either way, they met and it it was very happy.
1: Funnily enough, I think in the coming weeks we're going to have a piece on uh, Doral... Uh, because their mother Louisa, she's mostly called mother she's called mother in the book yeah there's a collection of her of her recipes oh brilliant um, because also the food, food she makes
2: sounds totally delicious exactly
1: so there's that to look forward to oh that would be Wonderful. great yeah what does she make
2: she makes lovely, she, makes, she insists on sort of making English things, but there's wonderful descriptions of scones and crisp little biscuits exactly. and she's always giving Delicious. big tea parties that you would want to be at because it just sounds so nice.
1: Uh, we're going to have to save that for a future episode, I think.
2: We are, but I was just going to say, it seems to me the moral of this is that if you want to meet someone from a book, just ring them
1: up. Yeah, just give them and, a ring.
2: And Definitely. it will be fine, and then you can have <laughs> tea with them. Yeah, Thank you very much, Catherine, oh, for talking to us. Thank,
5: thank
1: you me. A week or so ago, the Omani novelist Joko al hati and the translator Marilyn Booth won the Man Booker International Prize for Fiction for the novel Celestial Bodies, an account of three sisters living in the village of Al Awafi in an Oman on the brink of change. A couple of days after the announcement, at Waterstone's bookshop in Piccadilly, the winners spoke to the Turkish novelist Elif Shafak about the novel Arabic culture and modernisation, translation and women's wisdom. What we have for you here though, in the clip we're about to play, is a reading from that novel by its translator, Marilyn Booth. She begins by offering a little context.
6: We're going to be reading from a section that comes fairly late in the book. It's told from the point of view, not the narration of, but the point of view of Zarifa, who is an older woman and an ex-slave, but who has chosen to remain with the family that she has been with for a long time. And she is coming back from the wedding of Esma, who is one of three sisters who are at the center of the story. She's also, so she is, yeah, she's the former, a former slave in this household. The, the three girls I mentioned, their father actually was raised by Zarifa, um, Abdullah. Um, and Abdullah is the son of merchant Suleiman. Of some traditional merchant, and Zarifa is also Merchant Suleiman's lover, or mistress, or whatever word one wants to use. Zarifa returned home from Esme's wedding in a state of collapse, prompted by all of the dancing, singing, and constantly serving guests. But Merchant Suleiman was wide awake and waiting for her. He particularly liked taking her when she had just come back from a wedding, both because she was still in her outside finery, and because she carried with her the allure of the new marriage, which excited him. Zarifa wanted badly to get some rest, but she she gave him what he wanted as quickly as she could, and then he did fall asleep. She thought she would drop off immediately too, but a sense of unease was edging its way into her, though she couldn't pin down the source of it. Weddings didn't bring her the pleasure they once had. And, as proud as she could be of how true her dance steps still were, she really had gotten too heavy for such things. Anyway, what more did a wedding really hold for her than the endless service she had to give to the women who were there as guests, constantly supplying them with food and drink, and on top of that, the dancing and singing and all that gossip as well. There was no real pleasure to be had in weddings anymore, only in czar exorcisms. Those endless ceremonies intoxicated her. Everything from the grilled meat and the drinking to the heavy and incessant pounding of the drums until the ecstasy of it all lifted her outside of herself, beyond consciousness and into one sort of trance or another. In such a state, she might walk across the live coals or lie beneath horses' hooves or roll in the dirt under the careening circles of dancing bodies. Her mother, God be merciful to her mother, had been the czar's big mama, the one who decided on when to hold one of those events in the first place and then who presided over them. She was the medium, after all, the woman in direct contact with the jinn who had attached themselves ruthlessly to the human beings writhing on the hot coals. So let merchant Suleiman whip her for an absence of two or three days while she was immersed in the czar. Let him accuse her of playing around with one of his slaves. Let him curse her mother as the child of generations of runaway slaves. Let him do whatever he might, but she simply couldn't put an end to these raging, blistering ecstasies. Even Habib, her former husband, couldn't keep her from going. She'd leave newborn Sundar there next to him and slip out silently during the night to join her mother. Habib never did anything to bring himself any pleasure, she told herself, and so he didn't want anyone else to get any joy out of anything. If it weren't for this unmanageable son of his, she would have forgotten him completely. He was a lot younger than she was. From his mother, he inherited his pale skin and short stature. When he clutched her, she felt like she was being held by one of the teenage sons of Sheikh Said, who used to put their hands on her when she was barely a teenager, before merchant Suleiman bought her. She made her aversion clear in every possible way until Habib left her, before she could cause a total scandal, acting as her mother had done with her own husband, Nalsib. Before long, Habib was gone. She thought she was well rid of him, no longer forced to put up with the way he screamed from the depths of his sleep. We are free people, free. No longer forced to listen to his ravings about the corpses that were thrown into the sea, the pirates, the eye disease. But here was his son turning out exactly like him, Sanjar, too, would run away before long, and her heart would burn with grief. If only she had never had him. It still made her groan to remember the long hours of labor and Sanjar's difficult birth. Her mother tried everything to ease the way. She made Zarifa drink a rotten-smelling viscous oil, followed by water into which was mixed soil from a grave, and then more water, this time collected from the dirt floor of an abandoned and collapsed mosque. She made her drink the dissolved leaves of a lotus tree and honey over which Judge Yusuf had recited verses from the Quran. She even turned Zarifa upside down, so frantic was she by this point. When she despaired completely, she said to her daughter, your grandmother died giving birth, death is fate. But Zarifa did not die, nor did the baby, Ankabuta the mother, of Zarifa, Ankabuta stuck her hand up the birth passage, tugged until the bluish flesh flesh appeared, and slapped the shapeless thing several times until life surged into it. She performed the date-in-the-mouth ritual, tossed the baby into Habib's hands, and buried the afterbirth under the threshold after smearing it with ashes and salt. She sprinkled the soft sand around exhausted Zarifa with water, gave her fenugreek and clarified butter to drink, placed a knife at her head to ward off any evil magic that might be making its way to her or the baby, and went home to sleep after a vigil that had gone on for several nights.
1: <laughs> Marilyn Booth reading an extract from Celestial Bodies by Jocko al You'll find a recording of the full event and the scintillating conversation that surrounded this reading in your podcast feed. But that is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Anna-Katerina Schaffner, Catherine Morris, Jocka al Marilyn Booth and Elif Shafak. Don't forget to redeem those offers I mentioned earlier to subscribe to the TLS. Next week's paper will tackle the future of capitalism, the memory of D-Day, complications and decline in US fertility and some dystopian profits of the 20th century. For now, though, from Lucy and from me, goodbye.